Imagine you have an opportunity to see someone you admire, someone not only famous but respected around the world. And because of a series of events that all came together, you don't really even have to do much to go see this person. They're going to be coming by your office, and not only will you be able to catch a quick glimpse, you decide you're going to record the event to show your family and keep forever. However, in doing all of that, you end up unintentionally creating a visual record of the sudden and violent murder of the very person you went to go see. This is exactly what happened to a businessman who wanted nothing more than to film his president pass by in an open car. I'm Eric Bushman. This is the assassination of President John F. Kennedy in Dallas, Texas. The rainy morning of November 22, 1963 in Dallas-Fort Worth turned slowly into a beautiful day. The president's orders were followed, removing the bubble top from the limousine so members of the public, also known as the voting public, could get a good glimpse of him. Along the motorcade route in Dallas, there were hundreds of people taking photographs and several people with home movie cameras, the most common at that time being the silent 8mm film camera. A group of home movie makers even lined up along the route in various places. They called themselves the Dallas Cinema Associates. That footage includes the president leaving Dallas Love Field, headed down Lemon Avenue, through Uptown, down Main Street. If you see it, you know you're looking at the last moments of President Kennedy's life. But there was one home movie, one strip of film that would cause one man and his family agony for decades. The story of Dallas dress manufacturer Abraham Zapruder. He definitely wished that he hadn't taken it, that's for sure. I think it was always something very painful for him. Alexandra Zapruder is Abraham Zapruder's granddaughter. She never knew her grandfather well, born right before he died. And around the 50th anniversary of the assassination in 2013, she set out to tell the story on behalf of the family for the first time. Not just the life of her grandfather, but what the 26-second film means to the family and how it impacted their lives. Her book, by the way, is called 26 Seconds. For a long time, it was very painful for my father um, and for my aunt as well. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's a piece of historical evidence from an incredibly important moment in American history. And our feelings about it as a family and our association with it and the complexity that that brings, I think, is something that we all have to, you know, live with and think about and, 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 and work out for ourselves. But at the end of the day, for the, for the rest of the world, it's important evidence. And I think, you know, in that sense, it's hard to regret that it exists. Abraham Zapruder walked out of his office in what was then known as the Daltex building, the red brick building immediately east of the Texas School Book Depository. He climbed on one of those pedestals that sort of stick out from the iconic Dealey Plaza peristyles on top of the grassy knoll. When President Kennedy's limousine turned onto Elm Street, he began filming and captured the assassination from start to finish. The silent movie shows the president waving to the crowd, then grabbing for his throat, and then seconds later, the obvious explosion of his head from a rifle shot. Stunning to anyone who views the film for the first time. In the hours following the assassination, Zapruder, along with the Secret Service, needed to develop the film, and while trying various places to get it done quickly, Zapruder ended up at the studios of WFAA Channel 8. He was interviewed live on the air by WFAA's Jay Watson. My name is Abraham Zapruder. Mr. Zapruder? Zapruder, yes, sir. Zapruder, and would you tell us your story, please, sir? 
I got out and uh, about a half hour earlier and get to a good spot to shoot some pictures. And I found a spot, one of these uh, concrete blocks that I have down near that park near the underpass. And I got on top there. There was another girl from my office. She was right behind me. And as I was shooting, as the president was coming down from Houston Street making his turn, it was about halfway down there, I had a shot. And he slumped to the side like this. Then I had another shot or two. I couldn't say it was one or two. And I saw his head practically open up, all blood and everything. And I kept on shooting. Once the film was finally developed that day, several copies were made. Time Life eventually bought the rights to it, and while frames were published in the Warren Commission report and by Time Life, it was not something accessible to the American people in a standard motion picture format, at least not easily. This is where Robert Groden becomes a significant part in the history and the story of the assassination itself. In 1969, he says he obtained a copy of the Sapruder film. He says through someone who had done work for Life magazine. He kept quiet about it and worked on it. By working on it, he made various versions of it, slowing it down, zooming it in, keeping the president in the center of the frame, a technique he called Grodenscoping. He began showing it at the first symposiums on the assassination that started popping up at universities. Then he showed it in early 1975 at what was called the Politics of Conspiracy at Boston University. That brought in the attention of the local news media, which then got the attention of producers on a program at ABC called Goodnight America. The host of that program was Geraldo Rivera. When I appeared on Goodnight America, um, it was very heavily edited by the time it actually got on the air. I actually did a lot more and said a lot more, but it, it was cut down uh, so that Geraldo could take more credit for, for the time and uh, the things that he was saying would, would, would have greater weight. Uh, but I'll say, I'll say two things about that. Geraldo Rivera was a very self-serving opportunist. I mean, he didn't do the show because he cared about the Kennedy case. He did it to promote his own career. That's the negative part. The positive part is if it hadn't been for him, the odds are the film never would have been shown nationally or publicly, and it would have been quashed. I might have lost the film. Someone might have come and taken it. it you never know what might have happened. Um, he put his job on the line. Uh, when ABC's lawyers told him he couldn't show the film, he says, the hell we won't. He says, we're going to show it or you're going to get yourself a new boy. And he meant it. He put his job and his career on the line so that the public could see this most important film. For no matter what reason, he did it. And it changed the history of the Kennedy case. Good America, how are you? I want to introduce... Uh, another guest we have, Robert Groden, who is celebrating his 18th birthday on the 22nd of November in 1963. He was profoundly touched by the president's death, and he desperately wanted to understand how it could have happened. For two years, he, like most Americans, believed in the official version, the Warren Commission version of what happened, but the day he first saw that 8 millimeters of Pruda film, that amateur film that was made, that was the day he stopped believing. Uh, Robert, welcome, and I wish you could set up the Zapruder film a bit for us, and we'll get right into it. Okay. Uh, Abraham Zapruder was a Dallas dress manufacturer, and it was pure accident that he brought the camera with him that day. He almost didn't. And he was looking for a good vantage point, and he picked a point on Elm Street in Dilly Plaza in downtown Dallas. As the motorcade passed in front of him, 
he got what is frame for frame the most valuable historical document of all time. Grodin's prepared footage began with the presidential limousine on Main Street approaching Dealey Plaza. Then edited together were pieces from two other home movies, one taken by Marie Muchmore and the other from Orville Nix, who were both standing near the northwest corner of Houston and Main Streets. Then the Zapruder film comes up, and the American people were shown the assassination on their television sets. Okay, so the cars are coming along now into Dealey Plaza? Yes, these are the lead motorcycles of the motorcade. All right, now with the president and Mrs. Kennedy is also Governor Connolly. Right. right. Now, before he goes behind the sign, the president is waving to the crowd. When he comes out from behind the sign, he is shot, then Governor Connolly is shot. He's already been hit. He's already been hit. And now? At the bottom of the screen, the headshot. That's the shot that blew off his head. It's the most horrifying thing I've ever seen in the movies. Now, the Warren Commission said that all of the shots were fired from behind by Lee Harvey Oswald, a lone assassin, firing at the president. And as you can see, clearly, the head is thrown violently backwards, con completely consistent with the shot from the front, right. Now, this is an extreme blow-up of just the president from the film. Coming out behind the sign, he's shot. He's hit from the, he's hit here. From the front, too. He's from, from the front. front. Now, Jackie doesn't realize what's happened yet. She goes to his aid. And now? He's hit Again, from the, the violent backward motion. Totally consistent with 80% of the witnesses, which said the shot came from the grassy knoll in front and to the right. The showing of the film sent shockwaves, not just because a real-life murder was shown on television, but because the thoughts of conspiracy and wanting to think there was more than what the Warren Commission said now had a major argument to go along with it. After the president is hit in the head, his body snaps backwards as it falls to the left in the seat. From what we're used to seeing on TV when actors are shot on TV shows or in the movies, we always see that person fall backward or forward away from the gunshot. This made it look like President Kennedy may have been hit from the front and the right. What's to the front and right of the limousine at the time? A picket fence on top of the grassy knoll. But hold on, says former curator of the Sixth Floor Museum in Dealey Plaza, Gary Mack. Most people's experience with people being shot is from Hollywood, movies, television. Movies over-dramatize the action to make it exciting and interesting. The reality is when you use military ammunition, which is different from regular hunter's ammo, a person shot drops. They don't lurch about violently in, in most cases. Max says the kind of ammunition that would cause someone to drop in real life is the kind of ammunition used in the assassination. This is how military ammunition uh, is, is designed and built. That's what Oswald used. The thinking is the bullet will enter the body and exit without expanding or fragmenting, and it will kill the next soldier in line. But hunters who, who shoot game and all that, they'll notice that uh, when their bullet hits an animal, the exit hole is much bigger than the entrance hole. But that's not the case always with military ammunition. So a lot of people who believe that the conspiracy theories and the conspiracy books aren't basing their conclusion on enough information. They don't know about all these other angles, either because authors leave them out, or even the authors don't know. So let's ask a witness who was there. 
You might remember Bill Newman, who first tried to see President Kennedy at Love Field and then drove down to Dealey Plaza to get a second look. He and his family were the closest to the limousine at the time of the headshot outside of the people that are in the motorcade itself. Did he think that final shot came from the Texas School Book Depository, or does he think it came from the grassy knoll? I don't know. Uh, uh, that question's been asked many, many times to, to us. Uh, it was the visual impact that, that it really had on me more so than the noise or knowing the direction of the shot. The fact that it side of his head blew off and that he went across over to Miss Kennedy's lap, I just made the assumption that the shot came straight behind me, which in reality would be somewhere halfway between the picket fence and the school book depository. Newman says interviewers and producers who he has spoken to and worked with over the years get very creative when they want to push one way or the other. If you believe it came from the picket fence, when you take my picture, you're going to have the picket fence in the background. If you believe it came from the sixth floor, when you take my picture, you're going to have the sixth floor in the background. But I just leave, leave it with, I thought it came from behind, because the reality, I don't know. Because it happened so quickly. Sure. Well, the whole time, my focus was on the car. You know, my focus wasn't what was going on around me. It was the uh, entire time was, I was looking at in the direction of the president's car. The doctors at Parkland Hospital have through the years described the same scene, a massive wound to the president's head. Of the doctors who believe the shot had to have been a frontal shot, it's Dr. Robert McClellan who stood over President Kennedy's head while other doctors were working on him in trauma room one. The shot that went through his neck, I think, came from uh, back behind him and went through his back and exited his neck. This was an exit wound, but the shot that killed him several seconds later was fired from this picket fence and hit him probably around the hairline uh, here on the right and blew out the back of his skull. It traveled tangentially across his skull and blew out the back. This was a big blast exit injury back here. Robert Groden argues that the Dallas doctors would have had no idea about any controversy of direction of shots, considering when they stood over the president, no one knew at the time where the shots came from in the immediate aftermath of the assassination. They didn't know from Grassy Knowles. They didn't know from uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. They didn't know from depository buildings. They looked at the president's head and they said this shot came from the right front and it blew out the back of his head. The rear of the head was gone. Some described it the size of a grown man's fist, some the size of a baseball, what have you. Just massive amounts of evidence. And when you look at the official autopsy photographs of the back of the head, they showed the rear of the head to be intact. It's impossible. And here comes one of the biggest problems. The official autopsy photograph of the back of the president's head. If there is a massive wound, it's not there in the photograph. The photo shows a head with not much of anything that's obviously wrong with it. Conspiracy believers say the photo of the back of the head has been altered. What about those who saw the president after the wound? Dr. McClellan looks at the photograph. Someone seems to be holding a flap of scalp up over this large hole. And I've seen different reports about whether that was a flap of scalp or whether, no, that was just the intact back of his head. Well, I know the back of his head was not intact, and so I think it was a flap of scalp that was being pulled over that 
big gaping hole there in the back of his head. Secret Service agent Clint Hill not only saw President Kennedy get hit by the bullet, but he hovered over him in the limousine as the motorcade rushed to Parkland Hospital. In the interview where I mentioned that unfortunate audio issues I had, I first asked him to describe the wound from memory. The wound in the president's head it was above the ear and to the rear, and it appeared that when the bullet penetrated the skull, that portion of the skull just kind of erupted, lifted up a portion of it. Some of it went off onto the back of the car, and I think even onto the street. But the major portion of it was still attached to the scalp. But the material in there was gone because when he fell to his left into Mrs. Kennedy's lap, and I got up on the top of the car and was laying there, and I looked down, I could see his eyes were fixed, but I could also see that hole there. There was no material left in there. It looked like somebody had taken an ice cream scoop, gone into the head. Then I gave him the official photograph, and he offered an explanation. The skull is, is kind of made up into sections. And the section of the skull where the bullet penetrated just kind of erupted. But it didn't break all of it off. I mean, it, it, it broke it enough so it lifted up. So it was almost like a flap. And I think what you're seeing there is the hand of the doctor putting the piece back together. It's a little bit farther forward than it actually was. Right in here is where the penetration was. Okay. And but I was taken down. I was asked to come down to the autopsy room 2.30 in the morning at Bethesda Naval Hospital. They wanted me to view what the wounds were like because if there was somebody going to have to explain this to Mrs. Kennedy or to Robert Kennedy or anybody else, they thought it would be me. And so I was asked to go down there and the doctor was there to explain it to me. But you do feel this is an accurate picture, that nothing's been Reasonably accurate, yeah. It's, uh, you know, it, it's very difficult. A photograph that is reasonably accurate. Think about that. The Zapruder film, though, matches exactly what witnesses say, an explosion of matter from the head. The film has given researchers a tool to study the assassination, kind of like a detective might try to solve a murder case. But one person can see one thing and make an argument, while another person sees the same thing, but takes a completely different approach. And it's all possible because the man behind the viewfinder found a good spot, as he put it, to Channel 8 in the hours afterward to shoot some pictures. But what did Zapruder's film do to Zapruder himself? Back to the author of 26 Seconds, Alexandra Zapruder. It affected him very, very deeply. It was incredibly traumatic. Um, and I think it... I think it stayed with him, but I don't think it ruined his life. I mean, I think that he, you know, he lived to see the birth of four more grandchildren, the last of which was me. Um, and he spent time with his family, and he continued to play music, and he had an incredibly loving and joyful relationship with my grandmother, and, you know, they traveled. So he, he had a life, and he, and he lived, I think, a good life. But he didn't take home movies anymore, which is very sad. And... I know that the t anniversaries of the assassination were always very difficult for him. I spoke to Alexandra Zapruder twice, once as she was starting the book, and then again once it was published a few years later. The thing that I learned that was most surprising to me was 
that I hadn't considered was how difficult this was for him, how difficult it was morally to sort of deal with the film and, and face this issue of whether to sell it to the media and what the implications might be of that, um, and the grief that he experienced, the emotional trauma. I think that was what was most surprising. You know, my parents had handed down many, many stories about my grandfather. I had a fairly good sense of the man that he was, but um, I just had never considered kind of what the assassination and what filming this piece of footage had done to him. From the book, you'll learn the film doesn't just impact the man who took it. It also affects the entire family, including Abraham Zapruder's son, Henry, who is Alexandra's father. He had to make several critical decisions regarding the film after Abraham Zapruder's death in 1970, including trying to negotiate a price tag on the film's value when the federal government wanted it as an assassination record. He was someone who really grappled with the complexities of the film and did his best um, to handle the film with dignity. And I think some of the nuances of what he dealt with um, were lost in translation in the way that the media reported on the events. Um, so it certainly seemed to me important to both flesh out the conflicts and the dilemmas of the film, but also to paint a more accurate picture of my father and who he was. The family ended up getting $16 million for the film to be permanently possessed by the National Archives. The federal government essentially using eminent domain to say, gimme it, it's mine. But while the federal government possesses the original film, it does not own the copyright to it. That belongs to the Sixth Floor Museum. But back to the American public seeing the film for the first time in 1975. A particular group of the American public, those being elected to Congress, were also seeing the Zapruder film for the first time thanks to Robert Groden continuing to show his copy publicly. That Goodnight America nationwide broadcast was not the only time. I showed uh, the Zapruder film on a TV show in, uh, in Washington, D.C., in the middle of one of the worst blizzards they'd ever had. And a lot of congressmen and senators and their families were home. They were, they were snowed in. And I appeared on the show and I showed the film publicly. And based on that and Goodnight America, uh, I was invited by the Virginia congressional delegation to present the film before Congress. And I did. And to my absolute amazement, the most impossible thing ever happened. Congressman Thomas Downing of Virginia introduced legislation to reopen the case. Now the questions will come center stage. Did the Warren Commission really look at everything? We're talking direction of shots, number of shots. Was the autopsy performed on the president's body the night of the assassination done adequately? Did Lee Harvey Oswald know Jack Ruby? What was the CIA really up to during the time frame in question? Just a handful of questions researchers were pondering as the United States Congress decides to take a look. I'm Eric Bushman. This is the assassination of President John F. Kennedy in Dallas, Texas.